Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana, and I am pleased to be joined by uh, writer, director, David Weiner. How are you, sir? I'm absolutely great. Thank you for having me, Dana. Oh, thanks for being here. Before we started recording today, I was literally telling you I'm almost at a loss for words for, for the project that you created that I just watched, which is called In Search of Darkness. Now, for the listeners who aren't aware, can you just give a brief synopsis about what this documentary is about? And then I've got probably 40 questions I want to fire at you. <laughs> Uh, In Search of Darkness is a documentary about 80s horror films. And uh, it's a super doc, for lack of a better word, uh, because it's uh, it's a four and a half hour running time, approximately. And uh, it's unique in that it gets uh, upwards of 50 icons of the era and experts and uh, general all around, whether they're from the industry or outside of the industry, big fans of these movies. And they all talk about them. And we break it down uh, year by year throughout the decade with larger context chapters in between to create a structure that moves real fast and very informative reinforcing what you do know and hopefully at the end of the uh, viewing makes you want to binge watch about 500 horror movies from that era. That is exactly it right there because two th- two points I want to put across. One, this was the fastest four and a half hours that I've ever experienced. I consider myself to be uh, an above average horror movie fan. Uh, I, you know, I'm a child of the 80s and so, I mean, <laughs> most of these films I had heard of but there's they're brought into so much different context uh, throughout the throughout this film and you're right like i found myself pen and paper writing down movies okay i gotta watch this i gotta rewatch this i gotta watch this and we'll get into that but i guess the first question i have david is this is such an epic film where does sort of the the genesis and the inspiration to you know tackle a project this big come from i would say nostalgia is where you start Uh, an appreciation for living in the past. Uh, Some people say that it's a waste of time living in the past and we should be moving forward. I agree in many ways that as a true statement, but for me, I get lots of happiness thinking about movies that I've watched in the past that brought me great joy. And um, I get joy out of the entertainment and the infotainment of learning more about these. And I think we live in a culture right now where, because there's so much information available, uh, it's really nice to have a curated source for so many of these movies to provide a proper context of this stuff. So when you want to put together a collection of 80s horror movies, where to begin? Who knows? Because it, it just runs the gamut uh, of, you know, slashers and, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street is, is more fantasy, if you think about it. Um, from the from the from the the gritty to the phantasmagoric, there's just so much amazing creativity during that decade. So the idea comes from a, a, a desire and a demand to go back and to revisit these movies Remember why you love them, get pieces of the nostalgia, whether it's, you know, uh, a walk through a video store aisle or a cable box reminding you that you click the buttons on the top of your television, whether or not you had a remote control or not, you still have to get up and click those buttons. Um, we all connect to that in a certain way. So it's, it's, uh, it's actually more than just these movies, but these movies are a reflection of the times and these movies are a reflection of the things that we love, whether they were critically acclaimed or cri- critically, uh, 
ridiculed. They mean something to us for different reasons. And to be able to categorize them, to contextualize them, to draw a spotlight on how they were made and how they affected and influenced the people who were part of it, that to me was uh, extremely uh, interesting exercise and, and a monumental uh, project to tackle. And it all comes down to uh, executive producer Robin Block, uh, whose idea this sprung from. He was doing a, uh, uh, a documentary called In Search of the Last Action Heroes and wanted to focus on horror next. And uh, he, he asked me to be part of it, and we took it from there. But uh, credit to him for wanting to uh, tackle this uh, year by year through the decade and for turning it to the fans to make it a reality because it's a crowdfunded project. So what's the first step? You mentioned that it's a crowdfunded project. What's the first step? Do you do the, the, the crowdfunding campaign first? I mean, outlines? I mean, what is the very first step? Yeah, it feels almost like chicken and the egg, right? Yeah. Well, obviously, obviously, or maybe not so obviously, the idea comes first. But obviously, after you get that idea, you're like, well, how do we put this in motion? How do you make this a reality? Um, you have to have uh, some sort of idea of what you want to do. But I think what happens, what a project like this comes together when you have the momentum and direct the direction of a leader who can bring a team together to make it all possible. Um, and I'm going to use the word obvious a lot. That's going to be my favorite uh, word, but it's it's very true. You know, you need a great team to get something off the ground, and you need a like-minded team who understands the sort of the mission statement of any project that you do. And uh, I came on board when a team uh, had already been uh, assembled to do some of the marketing, to do some of the artwork. Um, so when I came on board uh, through a friend of mine uh, who said, this is a really cool project, you should check it out. She's one of our producers, Jessica Dwyer. And she had worked for me when I was uh, the executive editor of Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. She's like, you'd be perfect for this project. And she connected me with Robin. And my first order of business was like, okay, it sounds cool. 80s horror, can't go wrong. What's this about? What is this? They had a, a kick-ass trailer and they had a kick-ass poster that looked very professional and that clearly uh signaled that this was a project by people who really knew their stuff and it was the deep cuts as well as the greatest hits and it spoke to me that this was an exciting project to get to be part of so without getting too into the weeds on it you know how does a project like this start how do you do it you you know from the idea you have to decide how is this going to be funded and uh there's risks in funding there's also time con consumption in getting backing and if you want to crowdfund something you have to decide is this something that that people are going to respond to and you never know even if you know that there are lots of fans out there you never know if people want to open up their wallets you never know how fickle people are about what you know they might say well this has been done before but so we'd have to say well it's focusing on the 80s and this is unique it's going to be definitive and comprehensive this is going to be unique however you sell it People have to buy into that idea, and you have to, lastly, demonstrate that uh, you can get to the finish line, you know? I mean, so especially if you do a crowdfunding project, you got to keep people posted. Well, we're getting the interviews, and here's proof in the pudding. Here's a picture of, you know, David Weiner with the, the two guys from, you know, the Barbara Crampton and Jeffrey Combs from Reanimator. You know, we're doing this. This is what's happening. Here's another trailer showing a clip of an interview. We are so excited to give this to you. You know, people have faith in it. Um, two other things about it is you, you – 
we, we created, and this is all Robin Block, we created absolute involvement. You know, you get to be part of this. If you back this, you get your name in the credits. And, and people, when they feel like they've got a piece of it, when they when they know what's happening as it's going along, they feel like it's not like they spent money to get a product and they're just waiting for the product to arrive. They feel like they are part of the experience. They're part of the journey and they're part of the production. And uh, if we even ask, you know, we're thinking about this topic or these movies, you know, can you suggest things? Can you suggest, you know, the inner Interaction really makes a big difference. And so, yeah, gosh, you know, you can't, it, it, there's a lot of working parts. And um, I mean, that's just a long answer to a simple question. But uh, it, it's important in terms of fundamentally involving your, your, your backers as being part of the project. Are there other advantages to doing crowdfunding versus sort of conventional fundraising for film projects? I think uh, if you, you know, if your dentist wants to make a horror movie like uh, Ed Wood, you know, and uh, has the money and wants to, you know, put their niece or nephew in the movie. And that's that's the uh, that's the requirement. However, you get the money. That's important. But, uh, you know, I'm more of a content person. I'm a, I'm a creative person. I've never been the producer in terms of the, the, the purse strings and the fundraising. Sure. You know, I, I you know, we're a small company. Uh, that I am part of, so I'm 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 very much part of producing elements and line producing elements and you know bringing in talent and coordinating shoots and things like that. But when it comes to fundraising, that's really not my territory. Uh, but inevitably, it comes down to who are you beholden to, you know. Um, how well can you control the money that you get and the decisions you make based on the money that you get? And if the money is essentially yours given to you by crowdfunding, uh, the only strings are attached is you have to deliver the best product you ever can, but you don't, but you can, you have the creative freedom to make the best product possible without having your hands tied behind your back by controlling, uh, money producers. Yeah, no, fair enough. I would take me forever to go through the list of everyone that is featured in this film. But you have, if it's 80s horror, they're in this film, essentially. I mean, it's just incredible. I have to ask, how do you assemble this group of people? I mean, this. I'm just going to throw some names out here for the listeners to understand. Like you, Tom Atkins, John Carpenter, you mentioned Barbara Crampton, Sean S. Cunningham, Heather Langenkamp. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. It's it's pure '80s horror at at its finest. How do you assemble this large of a of a cast, if you will, for a documentary? You stand on a rock and you say, "Avengers assemble." <laughs> I've been watching a lot of those with my kids lately. So, but it's sort of the equivalent for horror. You kind of put together a wish list, you know. Um, uh, it, it's a very, it's a very. Again, I, I, I'm, I am incapable of giving you simple answers, sure. and I can't. But I like to clarify because all these things are nuanced and detailed. You know, you can make a wish list and say, I want to get these people. But uh, there's lots of things that play into your choices. You want to have a, a good uh, broad spectrum of, of directors, producers, writers, actors, composers, special effects people. You want to get a, a sort of a, a story told by People who are, have different roles in these movies, uh, you know, the journalists, you know, the uh, uh, even influencers uh, who are who are very deep rooted in horror. Uh, they all have a, a part to play to bring in the audience and to uh, curate this material and tell their stories about being on set and so on. Um, but you are especially with this first round, we were, we had such a limited budget. 
while I'm going through my wish list, not only am I seeing who can who can we get by hook or by crook, but you also say, well, listen, I, I want everyone plus the kitchen sink, but I, I have to draw a line at a certain point. We originally were like, let's hope we can get about 35 or 40 people. Uh, we, as we were upping the ante at about 50, we ended up, I think, with 47 on screen. I think we did 48 interviews. I, I, I just said... Because everyone said, well, what about this person? What about that person? And I said, yes, yes, and yes. But you got to stop somewhere. You don't have the resources to do everybody. You'll never deliver the film if you're constantly adding people. And while reluctantly, some people didn't line up the first time or they just weren't available or they said no. And some people were available. Uh, but I just, I just couldn't do everybody, you know, I, I, as much as I wanted to. So I figured who we got while we always wanted more, I think best told the story that we could tell. From the first interview to the last interview, what type of time frame are we looking at? Uh, in terms of lining people up yeah. versus filming versus yeah. last interview? Uh, the lining up process, so part of, part of the crowdfunding process is Part of the crowdfunding process is lining up talent to say, look who we've got, who has, who is part of, you know, attached to this project. And that shows that there, we're not only saying we want to do this, but we have people involved who are part of it and have confidence in our project. So we lined up, we lined up a nice, healthy amount of names just to sell it when we did our first Kickstarter, our first crowdfunding campaign. And then we did Indiegogo later with even more names. And we'd announce names as we would do our Indiegogo. We'd be like, all right, well, we're halfway through. Guess what? We have John carpenter like right that's that's a nice bomb to to drop you know when when you're raising money so um to answer your question i would say production it was only a couple months because we we did our first fundraiser in october of 2018 we were filming in this uh i want to say february february and march we did the bulk of our interviews in 2019 the way we the way i do it is i do the bulk of my interviews and then i save a couple uh usually unless there's like a uh, a ringer at, at the uh you know bottom of the ninth i save the i save the uh journalists and and sort of the, the the film geeks to fill in the corners at the end so when i've gotten all the interviews from the people from the era talking about not only the films that they were in, but the films that they love, I still have a laundry list of movies where I'm like, you know, gosh, no one's talked, talked about, uh, you know, Basket Case. Let's get, you know, let's get Phil Noble Jr. to tell me everything he wants to tell me about Basket Case. You know, get a couple other people and piece that story together with three people talking about it or however many it was. Uh, and that's that's the best way to go about it is you get the bulk of your film. Once you're shaping it and editing, you realize all the Swiss cheese holes that are missing. And then you plug those holes with supplemental interviews. And uh, those were probably done. I think I picked up a couple in July and then we delivered the movie in October. That's incredible. I mean, that is incredible. <laughs> Turn around if you think about it. Oh, yeah. So let's talk about some just some of these interviews. You're present for every one of them. Uh, I'm present for 90% of them. Uh, we divvied it up a bit because uh, Robin Block is also a, a, uh, a skilled interviewer, and he's in the UK. So he was able to get a bunch of people in the UK, and he, he wanted uh, a, an opportunity to go to the East Coast. And so he did a little traveling and picked up a couple people. We also had a couple uh, sort of – 
you know, like sort of Joe Bob Briggs, for example, you know, he was available to us, but I, I wasn't able to be there for him. So we had the director of his show. Uh, I, I worked with his director, gave him questions and a, and a consultation, and then he did the interview for me, for example. Uh, the rest was me in Los Angeles and traveling around a little bit. I did a little Pittsburgh quality time with like Tom Atkins and, and Doug Bradley in the same day. But yeah, I would say... You know, we, we, we spread the wealth a tiny bit, but I did the majority of the interviews. Actually, our uh, Jim Coons, who is our uh, director of photography, he's also an extremely skilled interviewer. And uh, there were times where uh, if he had a special relationship with these folks, he would be there and I'd be just sort of his shoulder chiming in. Uh, it, it really depended. So take me just through some of these interviews in a sense of you're clearly a fan of this, this, this genre that's presented in this documentary. So what was it like for you? as the fan to be in the same room talking to some of these people what was that like well i've been uh it was great it was amazing and i say well i've been because i i i've been doing this for years yeah. uh but uh, uh my background interviewing started even before i was working at entertainment tonight and i worked at entertainment tonight for uh for et online for 13 years uh but prior to that i did uh sort of you know red carpet stuff and and interviews and things like that and then when i left entertainment tonight i ran uh famous monsters of filmland magazine and so i did lots of interviews for that uh as the executive editor and then subsequent to that uh and i still write for them when i when i get a pocket of time uh i writing for uh the hollywood reporter for their heat vision section which is a Wonderful. I got to do these amazing uh, interviews, retro, retro, you know, something hits a 30th or a 40th anniversary and I get to sit down with the cast and that's wonderful. So all that leads up to what do I love to do? I love to like, like you do. It's a treat to get an hour with somebody and have time to, ex- you know, you have your list, you know what you want to talk about, but you hit tangents and you can go down the rabbit hole and discover really cool, interesting stuff, you know, and, and there's a certain art to getting someone to be comfortable and and want to share and to talk about things that they don't normally talk about, which sort of gets that spark going in their eye again when they've said the same thing over and over again about the project. If you could ask a new angle or just go a different, you know, different category, all of a sudden they're like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I love that. I, I love fly fishing. How'd you know, you know? So how was it to do these interviews? This was just a dream come true. Some of these people I had interviewed before, some of them, it was the first time. I have done this for years, but don't, do not get me wrong. Every single time I do it, it's an absolute thrill. I geek out inside. I put my geek, I put it to the side I give my professional thing. You know, there, there's sort of the element of when I land them, I do my happy dance. There's no better high no. than securing talent. Then when you sit down with them, there's slight nervousness because you're like, oh, boy, I hope this is a good interview. You know, they agreed to be here. They said they want to be here, but do they really want to be with me? You know, and then you're victorious and you get uh, upwards of an hour or more of material. And then you walk away and then I geek out yet again. And uh, it's an absolute high. And that's one of the reasons why I am so fortunate to be able to do this for a living because it's I get to I get to watch these people on the big screen or the small screen then I get to talk to the human behind the persona and when I can get the reality as well as the behind the scenes uh, making of fantasy that's just it's just it's so rewarding to me the film is so chock full of facts about every every film every movie that's covered I mean I've seen I would say 
upwards of 80% of the films that are covered in this documentary. And I still learned new things when I was watching it today. I was just like, I didn't know that. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I love the fact that you have Joe Dante asked talking about the Halloween too. <laughs> you know, I was just like, that's, that's, I said, that's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. But I have to ask you, like, were there some things that you came away from you know, as far as some of these movies that you didn't know and you were just like, huh, well, that's interesting. As the, you know, the director of the picture, were you still kind of taken back? Like, I didn't realize this or I didn't know that about this film. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I've never claimed to know it all. And I like to say I know a thing or two about a thing or two, but I'm always learning. I'm always learning. And when I'm doing my interviews, uh, I arm myself with as much knowledge as possible. And so it's usually during that process where I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. And sometimes it's an opportunity to confirm or deny something, you know, like one, one of the things that was really important to me going into this was sort of getting to the nitty gritty reality of, you know, the Toby Hooper, did he did he direct Poltergeist or was he really sidelined by Spielberg? Um, that to me was by, by talking to the people who knew that story and, and knew the reality of it. That was interesting to me. I would say one of the, the sort of revelations for me uh, in this, the whole process of this was I have seen many of these movies, uh, whether it was in the theater or on VHS or at the time or in the interim between then and now, you know, a little bit of time has passed since the 80s, you know, came and went. But I, my perspective changed a little bit because when I saw a lot of these movies, um, I was a little, I was younger and I was a little more cynical. I've always been an avid moviegoer. I love movies, but I, I think I was a little more savvy slash cynical about, oh, someone's trying to capitalize on, on the franchise concept and make their own, you know, horror villain so they could cash in. Like I, I didn't see it as something, uh, organic and, and genuine. I just saw it as a cash grab opportunity, but some of those turned it into some of the most iconic villains of the 80s, and I won't even name names. Um, so I had an opportunity to revisit these movies from a different standpoint. And a lot of times I was like, you know, this movie's a lot better than I thought. Or if I thought it was schlock, I've revisited what schlock really means. What does schlock mean to me? And why is schlock appreciated by so many? And by sort of dissecting that and understanding that, some, you know, one person's trash is another person's treasure. And these movies mean so much to so many people for so many different reasons, even though we all know that they're critically not necessarily the best movie at all. And people like to bandy about the word guilty pleasure birds, you know, but um, it made me appreciate what service these things do for us uh, a lot more. Uh, than I ever had before. And so I really enjoy being able to put these things uh, on a flat table and put The Shining next to anything that you would consider inferior and give it an equal opportunity to say why we love it and what's cool about it and what's our favorite moment. And you decide whether or not you think it's dumb or great. You know, that that to me was very important for this movie is I, I really did not want to eject, inject a lot of strong opinions. People have opinions in it, you know, but uh, like Joe Dante has some strong opinions, but they're fun and they're funny and they're in context and, and it's his opinion. It doesn't mean it has to be yours, but I wanted to have this to be kind of a open-ended discussion where you can make your own uh, you can draw your own conclusions about all these films if you choose. Well, the question I had written down, which was the big one I wanted to ask you is, how many movies did you have to, let me break this into three parts. <laughs> how many films did you watch for the first time or 
I guess the second part of that question would be, what, had you seen all of the films that are featured in this one? Second question was, was there movies you felt compelled that you had to rewatch? And was there movies you're like, nope, I don't need to see this again before this interview. I've seen it enough. I know the film inside and out. Yeah, there are some, like uh, some of the really well-known ones. I mean, I've seen The Shining a thousand times and I would watch it a thousand more times, but I had zero need to reference that movie because I know that one inside out, um, you know, or the thing, for example, or like the first Friday, the 13th or Hall- any of the Halloween movies, really. Although I did, do, I did do a rewatch of Halloween three because it's so fun and silly. And uh, because I was sitting down with um, Tom Atkins, you know, as well as Carpenter, like that was another one actually hit tangentially. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to John Carpenter about the films that he produced, you know, um, why didn't he direct Halloween two? you know, why did, what, what is the story between, you know, was there, were they really going for an, you know, a Halloween anthology where every Halloween will be different, you know, was starting with Halloween three and, you know, the disappointments around the sort of the misconceptions around Halloween three, when people realize that it's an anthology movie and it has nothing to do with Michael Myers. Did I watch all of these movies? I watched, uh, I, I would say, if, if I, I would break it into thirds, you know, I would say I've, I've seen, I had seen about 60, 60% of the movies. I knew about all of them. I had seen bits and pieces about all of them in terms of the ones I hadn't seen. But this was like, you know, this is the world's greatest homework in the world. You know, it's my job to say, oh, I've never saw, you know, Basket Case. Basket Case is one that I always knew about. I always wanted to get to. I never got to until this project. And I was like, finally, an excuse to watch Basket Case. And then blown away by how fun and crazy and silly it is, you know? Yeah. Does that answer your question? Oh, absolutely. And 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 by the way, Basket Case is on the list, my list as well. As uh, I have not seen, I'm, I'm very familiar with it, but just the clips that are in the film, I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to watch this one tonight because this looks uh, completely batshit crazy and I, I can't wait to watch it. I like to just kind of jokingly say the movie comes in at a trim four and a half hours because it was the fastest four and a half hours I've ever experienced. But I have to ask you, first cut of the film, what what kind of running time are you looking at? That was a twenty five hour film. Okay, okay. No, okay. <laughs> now, uh, uh, credit as always to my editor Samuel Way, who lives in the UK. And uh, another spectacular element of this movie is that I did this entire movie other than interviews. I did it from the desk you're looking at right now, and I edited it in the UK through ones and zeros. And the fact that you could do that and do it with the time difference and complete a whole film is is just a revelation. And I think it's really cool that we could do that. I did, there, there was a, I mean, again... Not a short story, but it ends up where this movie was only when we crowdfunded it. It was like, we'll deliver a 90 minute to two hour movie. And if we meet our goals and stretch goals, we'll make it a three hour movie or a two and a half hour movie. Or we'll have some extra special features and we'll put it in. Uh, but given given the, the, the requirements and demands of, of the actual structure of this movie, I mean, if you literally just do the math and if you say, well, if I want to do, you know, uh, anywhere between five and ten films per year you know anywhere from 80 to 89 and then i want to do a chapter in between and i want to give that some time proper time so that's got to be anywhere between 5 to 10 15 minutes who knows how much time we're going to devote to it all of a sudden i'm getting towards five hours especially when within the the little segments inside these timeline years some years I only had enough material where we could do only five movies, but I can give them a little extra, extra 
time. Others were like, wow, we've got like 10 movies. We've got 11 movies. We got We just have to kill some babies and get rid of some of these movies. And so there was a whole back and forth. And we ended up at the t- running time that we did. Literally, I, I, was, I was hoping that we could get to five hours. But anywhere past that, we literally were looking at the format of a dual layer Blu-ray disc and how much information it could get at 1080 and making sure that we could fit all the material on there. And because uh, you can't really fit more time on there, we're just like, that's where we're going to draw the line because we're like, we're now looking at a two disc set, you know, and we're also looking at a ticking clock in terms of when we said we were going to deliver. So we, we, uh, we actually had a rough cut that was about maybe four hours and 15 minutes, I want to think. And we, 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 we showed it to a bunch of the backers and we sort of had a, uh, sort of a, a test market screening just to see if we were on the mark or way off. And, uh, fortunately we got, uh, <laughs> the response was much better than we than we had thought expected or hoped for and uh, it really helped us streamline the process excellent now i was going to ask you about you know the uh, sort of the premiere of the film did you have a cast and crew screening you mentioned you showed it to some of the backers but where did you premiere the film we premiered the film at beyond fest in los angeles uh, in hollywood at the egyptian theater in october it just happened to be the uh after a Tom Atkins three movie retrospective where Tom Atkins was there. It was quite cool. We had a bunch of uh, the cast there, Barbara Crampton, McGarris, Brian Yosna, Kelly Maroney, Katie Featherston came along. It was, it was wonderful. You know, uh, one of, one of the sort of remarkable things about this movie is that this was never intended to be a festival film. We were going to make it for the backers and deliver it, you know, kind of our, our mantras sort of by the fans, for the fans. And we had a bunch of people reach out to us saying from around the world, all over the place, you know, South America, uh, uh, um, you know, Greece, Italy, Sweden. Argentina, Australia, you name it. It, it literally was amazing. Uh, there was like, can we play your movie? So we were expecting to just sort of deliver this movie. And next thing we know, we're premiering it at Beyond Fest, which is a film festival. We're playing in all these places that I mentioned. We got we got to about three or four of them. And then the other stuff we had to wait. And now we're in COVID land. So everything's kind of on hold. But uh, yeah, it was real fun. And, and because it's a four, hour, four and a half hour movie, I'm anticipating your question here. No one had to sit for four and a half hours straight. What we did was we divided it in two parts. Okay. So we uh, it was wonderful. We, we, we had a nice Q&A ahead of time. Caroline Williams was there as well. We had a nice Q&A and Robin came in, Robin Block came in from the UK and a bunch of our cast and crew were there. Uh, had a Q&A, taught us, had two hours of the movie, had an uh, intermission and then watched the rest. And um, it was the first time I got to see this movie on the big screen. The only time I got to see this movie on the big screen and l- listen to the audience respond to it. You know, and I was hoping that, you know, people weren't going to fall asleep. You know, you never know. And uh, people were laughing. People were cheering. It got to the point when you have this wall of posters in the movie and you're like, well, what are we going to land on? And that's the movie we're going to do. People would cheer if it was like their favorite movie. And, you know, Joe Dante is talking about, you know, why did they remake, uh, you know, Psycho shot for shot? That's ridiculous. And they said it's because... uh, you know, people don't like black and white movies anymore. And he's like, well, you know what I have to say about that? Fuck them if they don't like black and white <laughs> movies. Why do you have to remake a movie shot for shot? And that got probably the biggest laugh. And it was so rewarding to do that. 
That's awesome. No, that's truly, truly incredible. You know, you mentioned that this was, you know, by the fans, for the fans. And, you know, this came on my radar not too long ago. I caught the trailer for it. And I was just like, well, I have to see this film. I mean, I have to see this. And I, you know, I was immediately reached out and was like, I, is David available for an interview? I mean, I, I have to see this film. The trailer for this movie, The for the listeners, there's links in this episode show notes where you can watch a trailer for this film. There's also links on where they can find this film. Let's just talk a little bit about the distribution model that you're working with, right? Working towards right now, as far as, because uh, I can guarantee you people listening to this podcast are going to stop what they're doing and they are going to seek this film out. What is the best way for them to do that right now? Uh, that's a very good question because it's, again, not an easy answer. But uh, right now, the best way to get this film um, is probably the link you give them, um, which is uh, an, an online VOD version of the film. Uh, and if also if you go to all of our socials, whether it's Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, it's at 80s uh, at 80shorror.com or at 80shorror.com. There's a link there that you can get it. Uh, at the end of this month, I believe July 30th, it is going to be premiering on Shutter. So if you can't wait until then, you can get the VOD link. Uh, otherwise, you can watch it on Shutter. Uh, we we have done flash sales in the past after after we we delivered the the actual DVDs and the Blu-rays, and it came with and a wonderful package with with posters and you know like a, a pin, a enamel pin, and lots of fun, cool stuff. Those are sort of manufacturer on demand, so that's sort of been done, and we'll be doing it again in the fall when In Search of Darkness Part Two comes out, which we're doing, uh, uh, and the people will have an opportunity to get a hard copy of the original plus part two. Plus, we're going to be doing a variety of collector's editions. Uh, when we when In Search of Darkness came out, you could get the original movie, but we also did three collector's editions. We did an Elvira collector's edition, a Corey Taylor director. Uh, the, collector's edition and he's he's of slipknot and stone sour and was one of our backers and is in the film as well and that's sort of the serendipitous way it all came together and then uh dead meat james a janice he did one as well and those were uh those were collector's editions where it was the original movie but we restructured it in a way where there was a either more content from that interview from that person or it was structured differently where they were introducing year year by year with some of their favorite films or kills. Um, so to answer your question, how do they get it? They should click that link or they could watch it on Shutter at the end of the month. Or if they want a hard copy in their hands, uh, you, you should uh, get on our mailing list. Uh, and you can get that through the links at, uh, you know, at 80s Horror Doc. And we will inform you as to when and where and how you can get a whole new package with the hard copy and a whole second film that no one's ever seen yet that I'm working on now. Can you tell us what to expect with In Search of Darkness 2? Uh, I'd tell you, but I'd have to kill you. All right. That's what. That's all I need to know. <laughs> that's awesome. No, no, no. no. I'm, I'm pretty transparent with it. Um, it it's, a, it's very much going to be like the first film. It's, it's not going to be a four and a half hour long movie, but uh, we're shooting for three, three plus hours. And uh, it's going to be structured exactly the same way from 80 to 89 with chapters in between uh, with a variety of brand new interviews that we're in the process of doing. Uh, I I did two interviews this past since Friday. So on Friday, I did a, I will not say the name, but it's a living horror legend. And I talked with him for two hours and it was such a great interview. And uh, I did another interview yesterday, uh, both for In Search of Darkness and for In Search of Tomorrow. Okay. 
and we talked for two hours on each. And I thought we were going to do two hours for both. We ended up doing two hours for In Search of Darkness 2 and two hours for In Search of Tomorrow, which is 80s sci-fi movies that we're going to be doing after we deliver In Search of Darkness Part 2. We are aiming to get a variety of, of new interviews, and we are also going to we – have, we have a wealth of material that, if you think about it, do the math. Like we did upwards of 50 interviews where each interview was an hour or more. And that was all cut down to create four and a half hours of content. So there's amazing stories, amazing anecdotes, amazing movies. And like I said, we had to kill some babies. I mean, there were a bunch of segments that we had completely done that just we couldn't include because of the running time. So now, now that's an opportunity to not only include those, but we're going to go wider. One of the biggest criticisms of In Search of Darkness was the fact that we stayed uh, um, American or North American films. Uh, and we didn't go international. And, um, and that was a very, uh, I made that decision, even though it was a painful one, because there was so much ground to cover, I wanted to keep that focused. Uh, but everyone's saying, where's the Italian horror? Where's yeah. the world horror? Well, we're, we're definitely going to check that box very happily in this follow-up. And you basically think about it, if, if In Search of Darkness was four and a half hours of a movie, now you can have a seven, eight-hour movie. It's just it's going to keep on going. It's you got the four and a half hours, and then we go back to one with the same structure. But it's now more interviews, more people, more films that you really wish were in there. Ideally, we'll get the one that you want, whoever you are, and whichever that is. There, there will always be films that we can't cover, but you know who knows? In Search of Darkness Part Three, we'll get to it. Absolutely. And one of the cool things is that uh, in between these documentaries, we're building a community element. So. What is really fun right now is like, again, involving our backers, not only do they just give us money and we make a product and they get the product and ideally they're happy. It's a long road in between. And so in addition to polling them saying, here's, you know, who write in, vote, what are some of your favorite movies that you'd like to see? We started up a, a Discord community on the on the Discord platform where uh, every other week we're doing we, we're doing a Discord community for In Search of Darkness and one for In Search of Tomorrow. And they're currently running. So each week, s- switching off uh, one for tomorrow, one for darkness, we have watch parties every Sunday where you have a Q&A with some of the talent that was in these movies or an expert on these movies. And then we watch the movie with a running commentary and everyone hits play on their own copy. And it's this wonderful community where during the week, everyone can get together and share stories about what they're watching, what they love. You know, while the world burns and we're all stuck inside, we have each other and we can all connect that way and we can we can sort of shelve the the real life horrors for the fun ones and the distractions and the entertainment and the fantasy and so we're doing that and uh it's really cool for everyone to have access to for example our first uh in search of darkness watch party was reanimator with jeffrey combs doing a q a oh, that's awesome uh we just just yesterday uh while i i, I was unfortunately unable because i've been so busy working on the movie and i was doing an interview I would have liked to have been there. We did Dune, and we had Brad Dorif 
you know, talking, having a Q&A with that. Um, we, we've had, you know, we did Flash Gordon and we had Sam J. Jones. Uh, he was talking with us and he did a running commentary during the film and he's never done that even for a disc. Uh, and we had the, uh, the director, Lisa Downs of Life After Flash, and she was along for the ride as well. And it was such a fun time. And so, you know, sort of talking about In Search of Tomorrow now, but we're doing this for both communities. And uh, it's a very cool thing that we're doing while we uh, try and make some movies that make people happy. You're still doing the crowdfunding for In Search of Tomorrow. In Search of uh, Tomorrow, the crowdfunding is complete. It's complete. Uh, uh, they will likely be something down the road, but what's happening now is now, you know, we, we attached a, a large amount of talent. You could see it on the Kickstarter. Um, and it's covering all the favorites of, of sci-fi and, and all the fran- ticking all the boxes of all the franchises, you know, RoboCop and Aliens and Star Wars and Star Trek and E.T. and, and talent from all these. But also just like the, you know, listen, I, I, I will champion Saturn 3 till the day I die. It's a extremely flawed film but for that reason i'm happy to say this is a great film because and it's a silly film because you know um and so for every you know for every et where we literally had d wallace and we have henry thomas attached to talk about that stuff i'm going to spend quality time on mac and me whether you guys like it or not you know and talk about why that that has a place you know and yes it's a punchline and we all know it but it's it's there's some people who saw that before they saw et and it means something to them and so that's the whole process of of this big melting pot of uh sci-fi because there's cold war films there's post-apocalyptic films there are all these sub-genres there's horror sci-fi um there's there's sort of the fantasy element you know is crawl a sci-fi film or a fantasy film you know it's both really uh you know megaforce that's important we got to include megaforce right deeds not words i'm real listen i'm i'm so excited i'm you've got me so pumped up for for in search of tomorrow God, i mean this is this has been just awesome talking to you i have to ask you before we wrap things up tell me your go-to horror movies when you were growing up i have to know that go-to horror movies when i was growing up i want to th- i mean i want to think hard about that because there's there's a lot of easy titles um but i want to take your i want to take your question literally as into what did i return to over and over and over and i would i would argue in my i would argue to myself that it's the ones that i thought about and i thought about it so much that i needed to there i approached it either two reasons one because it was i was entertained and frightened and loved it and i just wanted to see it again and again and you know that could be anything from like i said the shining earlier to halloween to uh, Alien, which I consider a sci-fi movie, not a horror movie, but I, I you know, uh, Alien is a tremendously influential mo- uh, movie in my my personal wheelhouse. But um, there are certain movies that scared the crap out of me, and I needed to tackle them because I was afraid of them, and so I ne- I really felt that I rather than oh I'll never see that again it's too scary some it took me a while to come back to but I needed to deconstruct them to understand them you know and so I have extreme fond memories of watching either The Exorcist or or the Amityville Horror on TV uh, on a tiny little black and white TV in my den sitting there by myself with my grandmother's afghan over my head where I could watch through the holes at the scary parts just to see if I could get to the end. And I, I those are the movies, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, scared the absolute crap out of me because of its cinema verite style. It felt real. Uh, those are the ones I find myself going back to more to 
to learn how to not be scared about it. It's a, it's a laundry list. But last on that list, last but not least, I would say probably American Werewolf in London. That's probably uh, one of the most influential horror films I've ever seen because that really made me want to understand uh, makeup effects and practical effects. And I remember reading, uh, it might have been in Life magazine, uh, there was a, a whole expose on American Werewolf in London and Rick Baker. And uh, I remember not only describing how it was done, but showing this picture of David Naughton half in the floor where he had this prosthetic, you know, it's during his transformation and his, his body is very thin and weird looking because it's half wolf. And it never, I, it always blew me away because I'm like, there's, there's no way that that's him in a suit. How did they do that? And then I realized, oh, of course, they put him in the floor. I didn't even know that they could build a set I thought they they used someone's room. I didn't know that that's a set and that the floor is elevated. Oh, they did that with Chucky, too. I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that that's a practice. And it made me really pay attention to the art of illusion, illusion and misdirection and how practical effects are made. And, you know, I myself needed to understand that the recipe for blood on screen involved caro syrup. You know, that was my first <laughs> You know, any kid who makes their own monster movie, they're like, well, how do I make real stage blood? You know, these are the things that really sort of made a difference and an impact. Outstanding. Oh, that is outstanding. How about you? How about you? What's your... Well, I'm I'm glad you asked. My, of course, and this might sound a little bit cliche, but to be completely honest with you, uh, in 1985, I was seven years old. Yeah, seven years old. Uh, my brother, who's a couple years older than me, uh, we snuck down uh, one Saturday morning with a rented copy of the original Nightmare on Elm Street, which, to be honest with you, as a seven-year-old, traumatized me <laughs> to the point, David, to the point where at 42 years old now, that first film, I still cannot watch Alone in the Dark by myself. I, I yeah. slept with my light on for, for three years. And... You know, something you said really resonated with me in that, you know, sort of the deconstruction of of those films. I, I tried immensely to do that with the Elm Street films. And what would happen was with each subsequent year, uh, 85, Freddy's Revenge, 87, the Dream Warriors, 88, and they just they just kept coming. And, and thankfully, by the time we get to Freddy's Dead, you know, he's... He's not as scary as he is in those first few movies. And, and I was able to sort of ease out of that, out of that fear. But for me, that was always, that was the most traumatic. Uh, Freddy Krueger was the most traumatic character for me and something that still resonates with me as, as an adult now. Uh, other films, I was big into the Friday the 13th films. Loved them. Uh, I was a fan. I was a fan of Halloween three all along. I know it's had a, a, a resurgence, if you will, but I've always enjoyed that film. I actually saw that before I saw the first two Halloween movies, so maybe that played into it. Oh, 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 there you go. See, it didn't. Your expectations weren't played with, and so it didn't matter to you. Yeah, I that that's a that's a crucial detail. Yeah. And, and when you talk about why you loved Halloween three, is because you watched it first. Yeah, no clue. And and like a lot of people my age, there was a mom and pop's video store right down the street from our house. And I would spend hours daily, endlessly perusing the horror movie section, looking at the box art. And I love, I love that, you know, we touch so you touch so much on that in, in the film about just the box art. And that's so important. And, and it's just not done that way anymore. And I loved you know, the way Heather Langenkamp sort of described, you know, the, the artwork for the Nightmare on Elm Street films. Mm -hmm. and, and I was just, I was just, I would get lost in, in the horror movie section for years. And it wasn't until I was older that I actually saw a lot of those films. 
but that, I, yeah. that, well, that's part of the magic of that era that is lost on that that needs to be documented in a documentary like this. You know, yeah. whatever whatever you think of In Search of Darkness, it it was my intention to evoke nostalgia to the people who were there, but also to inform the people who weren't that this is something that's important to us. Um, and it, I'm sure it's harder to connect, but it's it's, it's important to know um, because as the old folks get older and lament the you know. The, the loss of brick and mortar. Um, it's 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 important. You know, the fact I'm, I'm jumping around here, but the fact that vinyl came back blows my mind, but it makes me very happy that I think it doesn't matter how instant gratification our culture becomes. People like to browse with physical things in their hands. People like the, the, the interaction of actual things that they can hold, uh, reflect on the art, make their decisions that way, flip it from front to back and read it that way with their hands. You know, make a, a obviously we're, in, you know, our times are different right now where, we, you know, I, I know this will pass. Yeah. But even more so now, we're so deprived of the interactions that we really wish that we had. It makes us pine that much more for, the simple things that we took for granted back then i sure took it for yeah. granted it's like i you know it was just a process i'm like all right i'm gonna walk up and down these aisles i'm gonna spend a good amount of time figuring out what i want based on the artwork Ooh, that looks like there's some good nudity Ooh, but that one's got effects by rob botine oh god i only have four bucks for one which do i do all right this one next time this one now you know uh this one i'll never rent because it frightens me i don't like the artwork or it looks super cheap such as chopping mall that's one movie that I never saw until this movie that I made because I looked at that artwork and I just said it's a guy it's a hand holding a bunch of body parts hanging out while I love Day of the Dead and Dawn of the Dead and body parts and zombies there's something about just a very in your face well we're chopping people up and it's in a bag and we're it's all at the mall I'm like no interest whatsoever I had no clue <laughs> that that was about like Terminator Johnny Five robots saying have a nice day after they blow your head off with a laser you know <laughs> how would I know that yeah. you know and so that was a revelation to me years later when people were like you got to do chopping mall and I'm like wait a minute is this the same thing that I thought it was? Absolutely not. But point is, is there, there's a real connective tissue process to whether you were at a video store, whether you someone had a, a, a bootleg tape. I mean, I saw Faces of Death with a bootleg tape when I was at school on an afternoon with some friends. And they said, I've got that tape where they show people dying. Oh, we got to see it. And then we're deciding, is this all real? Is some of this faked? You talk about it for endless days. But it's this bonding experience over something that's especially gruesome. But it's, it, it's, it's sort of this, you know you're not old enough to watch it. You know that you can't share this with your parents. You're slightly disturbed and it makes an impact on you, but it makes you think about things. It makes you think about your own mortality. You have this bonding language with your friends that no one else knows about, but you guys did that. You know, that's yeah. that's a rite of passage that I think everyone ideally, I wish everyone could have, but you know, in this day and age, you kind of have that less with this sort of streaming instant gratification, less filters, uh, way of of consuming media, 
Uh, there, there, I'm, I'm going to now again hit a tangent, but there's this amazing video that I think perfectly encapsulates everything that we've been talking about in terms of the nostalgia, the horror, the looking back, the uh, hanging out with your, your brothers or your friends and seeing things that you should not be seeing at an early age. It's a video by a band called Wolfie's Just Fine, and it's called A New Beginning. And uh, you, see, you can find it on Vimeo and YouTube, wherever you want. It's easy to find. Uh, it's such a great song because the song itself is really good but the video that goes with it it, it perfectly encapsulates this because and i won't give away too much but it's this little kid running into a house with older brothers and they pop in on friday the 13th movie and they're watching this and they're watching this he's in love with this beautiful girl and there's a sex scene and he's he's not old enough yet but he's at the age where he's paying attention and he's like wow wow really they do that in this movie and then the killer comes and kills the boyfriend and then kills her and it blows his mind and it disturbs him in, uh, in a real compelling way. And I just love that video because we, that, that's all of us who have watched these movies back in the day. And uh, it's its sort of like the uh, honorary mascot of my movie. You know, David, you, you've, you invoke so many memories. Um, I, I, I really feel like I might represent that last generation that was, you know, teenagers before the internet was really a thing. I mean, I mean, yes, my friends and I, we rented faces of death at the local, there was a, there was a mom and pops video store where the clerk, you know, was a high school buddy of ours and he, they had that to rent and we watched it. And I remember the neighbor across the street would tape things off HBO and Cinemax and would just hand me these blank VHS tapes. And that's how I saw, you know, Fright Night or The Brain or, you know, all these, I mean, but it was like, it was like this whole underground cinema type thing with my mm -hmm. friends and, and we never spoke about it to our parents. I mean, you just, you just invoke so many honestly amazing memories. I'm not saying a Faces of Death is amazing, but just that, you know, the, uh, <laughs> but you know, just the, and that's, that's all gone. That's not there anymore. It's, it's just not there anymore. And it's really, uh, I, I don't want to end this episode on a down note, but it, it's nice well, to rip. Well, I want to interject real quick. I, I wonder if it is still out there and how it is out there. It's got to be. It's just a different way than, than we did it. But I'd, lo I'd love to learn more about in this day and age when you have this sort of instant gratification. It's It doesn't matter how you get it. It's the fact that you got it and saw it, right? So whether you're going to a video store or whether someone's handing you a tape when, and putting it in your backpack so your parents can't see, it still comes down to you're watching something uh, secretly that's ahead of your time that you're probably not ready for and it makes quite an impact on you um, and I just think it's a little easier now uh, and I don't know if that's bad or good uh, you know it's probably airs on the bad side but it's still everyone has to grow and understand in some way shape or form and so um, I look forward to uh, a younger generation watching this movie and and connecting it with their own lives you know, um, and how they do it and why it's important to them. Because it doesn't necessarily have to be a video store. It doesn't have to necessarily be cable. You know, cable for them is streaming. It's the yeah. same thing. It's whether or not their parents let them do it. And if they sneak it to the TV at two in the morning, it's the same difference as I did when I slept over at my friend's house and watched Friday the 13th at two in the morning because I didn't have cable, nor would my parents ever let me see that movie. You know, these movies 
are special to all of us for a variety of different personal reasons. So like if I'll say one last thing about all of these things, it's like uh, uh, if you if you if you bounce around on social media and you're talking about these movies and what you love and what you don't like, when you're harsh on a movie that you don't like, try to remember that these movies are important to other people. Yeah. And everyone's welcome to their own opinion. And if you don't like something, you don't like something. But try not to slam someone because they like something and you don't because you want to feel superior to them. You know, yeah. play, play it a different way. Either, you know, take the discussion in a different way about the virtues of, of something similar or what you think is, is an improvement. But, you know, I think I think if we all sort of celebrate these movies and why they're important to all of us and we could find collective pockets of champions of Howard the Duck or Basket Case or whatever it may be, then you found some pals who understand your language. And then uh, ideally, it's not so toxic out there. I always like to say that, you know, if I'm not a fan of a particular film, but somebody else is, I'm always a little bit jealous of them because they saw something in that film that I didn't. And and I and I'll so I I agree with everything you said there about, you know, if you don't like the movie doesn't mean you're superior to people who do. And that's just that's such brilliancy. I mean, it's brilliant just to say that. And uh, yeah, yeah, I think we need to get that message out to more and more people, especially on social media. It's, it's it's very important to remind people. I I have a I have a site of my own stuff called It Came From Blog. So it's itcamefromblog.com, and um, the site itself gets love every now and then because I'm super busy. But the uh, the Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, but Twitter mostly, uh, is is like my steady stream brain dump. And I think of pop culture, this, that, or the other thing. And also my other site, sorry, my other handle, which is Tiki Ambassador on Twitter. I have two separate things, but it's sort of a steady stream of the things I love. But what I'm getting at is, especially with It Came From, I don't get political and I don't spread toxic behavior. And I don't jump on people for liking something that I don't like. And what's been wonderful about it is uh, it's very, very, very possible. And it happens. And this is what I've got. And I'm very proud of it is to 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 have a, a positive community to share the things that are that are nostalgic to them and make them real happy and everyone says oh my god you know the, the the greatest moment of my day is if i post some random whatever it may be and someone says oh my god i had this or i haven't thought of this in 25 years that just made my day and it makes my day and it's a total stranger but there's a connectivity and a community there and it makes me real happy and it makes me happy that these random things that i share that just are whims and 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 moments that make me smile uh if, if it could make someone's day a better day you know these communities are absolutely possible and i'll just bring it back to the discords for in search of darkness and in search of tomorrow we're creating these documentaries that are just ultimately informational educational things entertaining things that make you just want to explore more ideally help curate really important and fun uh, content but at the end of the day we want to build a real positive community that just shares what they love and can play in the sandbox with others well i love it that's it i love it <laughs> that's perfect <laughs> That's perfect. That's absolutely perfect. Uh, you mentioned you mentioned your website. Is there any any other uh, you know social media things that you you invite the the listeners to check out? I'll include some links in the uh, in this in the show notes. Yeah, that'd be great. No, uh, you know, it came from blog.com or all the socials on Twitter, 
Uh, Instagram and Facebook are at it came from blog in search of darkness in search of tomorrow. All you have to do uh, is go to eighties horror doc.com eighties sci-fi doc.com or the socials are eighties horror doc eighties sci-fi doc. And we're pretty easy to find and uh, spread the word. Oh, and I, I intend to. Believe me, I intend to. I, again, just to, just to finish this up by saying, once again, I saw the trailer for this film, and I immediately jumped into action. And I said, that's it. I have to see this. I have to talk to, I have to talk to David. I said, who's the director on this? I have to. And, and it all kind of came together rather quickly. And I just want to tell you, you know, thank you for taking time out of your incredibly busy schedule to, to spend a, uh, a little bit just chatting with me about this amazing documentary you did. Thank you so much for having me on. I, I really enjoy your, your show. I saw one of your guests and I listened to you. Your conversation was uh, Steve DeJarnette yep. talking Miracle Mile. Uh, Steve, I got to interview Steve about Miracle Mile for Hollywood Reporter, and I asked him to be in search of tomorrow because he did not only Miracle Mile, but he also did Cherry 2000. He's a really talented guy, really nice guy. And the fact that you, Miracle Mile is one of your favorite movies already puts you in the this guy's cool column. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And I, 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 I do think we, I've been a huge champion of that film for the duration of this podcast. It comes up at yeah. least 20 times in, in 20 different that, episodes. That movie for you is perfect because you said you came in like a half hour in, so you didn't even know what it was. Yep. And you were trying to, for, for years, was it trying to figure out <laughs> what, what movie that was? Yeah. For me, I saw it in the theater, but I did not know. I didn't know anything. I just read great reviews. And I was like, you know, I want to see a movie. This got great reviews. Poster's cool. I don't know what's going on. I like Anthony Edwards. Let's watch this movie. And uh, one of the things that was so compelling about Miracle Mile to me was, uh, I don't know, I'm sure Steve told you this, but uh, originally it was considered, it might have been a Twilight Zone standalone movie. And uh, I loved sort of the, the sort of the mind fuck for lack of a better word, uh, you know, after after he gets that phone call from the missile silo and he's running around trying to figure out how do I get out of here? What do I do? There's a point where he's just like, am, is this did this happen? Am I just doing these radical, crazy things and nothing, this is not going to happen? And then I don't want to give it away for the people who haven't seen this movie, but where it goes and where it ends up, it's just it's a mind blowing film. And it always just really resonated with me. Well, take me, if you don't mind, just take me through that first viewing and well, keeping it spoiler free because, you know, unfortunately, like, like I say, unfortunately, because I picked that movie up like half an hour into it and it took me years to find it again. And now Steve was gracious enough to send me, you know, not one, but multiple Blu-rays of, oh, cool. of Miracle Mile and Cherry 2000. And I've got to really look at all the supplemental material. And, and, and he wrote Strange Brew as oh, well. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I'm actually I'm actually Canadian, and uh, that's uh, that's a classic where I'm from. <laughs> so, uh, but that being said, like you you nailed it perfectly with the whole: is this really going to happen or not going to happen? And I just I just want to be in your mind seeing this in the theater. And you said, you know, spoilers for Miracle Mile, everybody. We just I just have to ask your your opinion. Okay, well, I I I did not know what happens at the end of this movie. Right. I knew the premise. Right. Um. So the phone call happens, and I believe it. I take it at yeah. face value. 
Uh, and he's running around and he's, he's trying to get his girlfriend. He's trying to, you know, marshal, uh, resources to get on a plane or get, you know, he's with Denise Crosby and, uh, you know, they're, they're arranging a flight and quick, you got to get what you need and come back and meet us at this place. And he gets into mishaps along the way, you know, weird things that, you know, confrontations at a gas station, you know, being thrown, jumping out of a car, all these, it's just all of this stuff, when I, let me encapsulate it this way. When I watch movies like that, it's very visceral, and I really love to put myself in this, that situation. And that's why I love this movie so much, is I think, well, gosh, if I was late for a date, and I picked up the phone, and a guy says, the missiles are coming in 90 minutes, what would I do? And I'd probably be in absolute denial because I'd be like, it's got to be a crank call. Or or is or I think to myself, there's no way I could do anything in the middle of Los Angeles to get to a safe spot. I'm doomed. But I'd, I'd, I'd struggle for 90 minutes, uh, tormented by what's coming or not. And so what's really great about that movie is like a good 45 minutes in, there's there's nothing happening other than running around getting in and out of mishaps you know all all crucial to this story and the structure but at a certain point you think to yourself wait is this all in his mind is this all real is this all going to happen because it's just it's just mayhem and there's no proof that this is really happening and then the shit goes down and it's real and it's unavoidable and it's it's armageddon and then it's too late and then we get the ending where it is not a happy ending um and that just i was i was stunned walking out of that theater because i'm like that's exactly what it would be like and that's probably who i'd be because even if i tried to do something you you can't escape that you know and i also grew up you know i was born in 68 and so i grew up in an era where the Cold War was a real thing. The Russians were the bad guys. The The day after, uh, okay. you know, directed by Nicholas Meyer, uh, who did Star Trek Time After Time and Star Trek Two in the Star Trek series, who was in In Search of Tomorrow, that was very much a reality. Uh, you watch that movie, because the thing is, up until that, the day after came out, <laughs> clearly we're in ten- tangential territory overall. But when the day after came out, up until that point, you were like, well, nuclear, nuclear Armageddon. Okay, so the bomb comes, we all disintegrate. I'm sure it's painless and you're done. And it's all, we're all gone. That could happen at any time someone's got their trigger, you know, hand on, on the button, finger on the button. But that illuminated the fact that, no, that's not the case at all. There is destruction, but the majority of the people are left alive, enduring radiation poisoning and nuclear winter, and there's nothing left and there's nowhere to go. And then I read books like uh, On the Beach, uh, Neville Shoots on the Beach, where everyone, and they made that into a movie as well, but, uh, you know, everyone's living a wonderful life, kind of like we are in COVID land, where you're in blissful denial if you're not in the middle of it all, kind of waiting for something to happen. So you're trying to live your life like a normal life, but there's this big specter over your shoulder of a nuclear cloud that's eventually going to come and kill everyone where they are in Australia in that book. So I was reading books like that, and I was seeing TV movies like that, and I was thinking thoughts like that, trying to distract myself by wonderful sci-fi and horror and fantasy and comedy and Ferris Bueller and John Hughes, uh, anything I could you know, to live my life and have a wonderful, fortunate existence, which I really did have. I have no complaints, but that was that was there and then i saw miracle mile and all that stuff was in one concentrated dose 
<laughs> I've been a zombie ever since. I remember uh, one of the things that, that really sticks with me with the day after is, you know, you don't hear from the president till the end of the movie. And he just gives this speech and it's kind of like, well, we're going to rebuild. And then the guy's listening. That's it. They're all just kind of like, that's it. That's all this guy's got to say. And you're right. You, you realize, you know, there's that scene where the farmers are talking about how much soil they have to take off the ground to be able to plant crops again. And yet you realize, of course, this is the reality and kind of the world we're living in right now where it's you realize that there's this new normal that's obviously going to be in effect for quite a while. It's that that that, that phrase is what probably scares me the yeah, most, the, me. the new normal. Yeah. And I'll just leave it at that. But a lot of these stories ultimately come to the same conclusion that we all have to look out for ourselves and each other and you cannot you cannot depend on the authority figures to take care of you. And I always grew up thinking that that was the case. And the cold, hard reality has been a slow uh, cracking of that foundation. So it's no it's no surprise to me now. But, you know, from the first discovery that your parents aren't gods and that they're just normal people, just trying to figure it out day to day, then you become old and you become a parent. And you're like, oh, wow, you mean I'm supposed to be an adult at some point? I guess I'll have to play that part, at, you know, when I'm not collecting my toys and watching movies from my childhood, you know? But, um yeah, uh, I'll just put a period at that one. I went to Los Angeles for the first time in my life the last week of February this year. Before, before you know, everything went to shit. I, I, went, I flew out there for five days. I was staying with a friend in West Hollywood and my very first time in Los Angeles. And there were two buildings that were very, very important to me that I had to see with my own eyes. One was... Exactly. Building. Of course. And the one. For, Wait, hang on. Go ahead. Go on. Yep. And I saw that, that when we got off the 405 there, right in Century City, there was Nakatomi Plaza. And I mean, I lost my mind on that one. I didn't care about the Capitol Records building or the Hollywood sign or Hollywood Boulevard. I, I needed to see the Nakatomi. And your first thought was, it's not as tall as I thought it was. That's exactly it. That's exactly okay. it. And then the other one, I don't know the name of the building, but the one from Miracle Mile where they land the helicopter. And unfortunately for me, I was never able to pinpoint which one it was because it looks like in that general area, there was about three or four buildings that fit that description. So I don't know which one it was. I know I saw it. I just don't know which one it was. It, it, it's it's across the street, maybe not directly across the street from uh, LA County Museum of Art, LACMA. Okay. okay. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Those are those are the those are the buildings that. Well, living in Los Angeles, everywhere you go, sometimes you're standing in front of something, and you would be like, "Wait, they they shot that here, and it's right here on this corner." Anyway, I digress. It's been a pleasure chatting with you, and I'm and I'm going to cut you off because I'm really cutting myself off because I I'm enjoying chatting with you, and yeah. we can chat all day. Well. Well, we need to pick this up again sometime. I'd love to have you on the show again sometime just to sort of talk about your career as a whole, because it sounds like you've done some really interesting things in your career. And I'd love to, when you've got the time, maybe we, you block off two hours, we could take a little deeper dive into that, because I would I would absolutely be interested in hearing about it. Yeah, it'd be my pleasure. You know, why don't we, we revisit around uh, October, because yeah. I'll be doing more promotion for In Search of Darkness Part 2. Love and there's, there's a good excuse to say, In Search of Darkness Part 2. Now, more about me. I love it. <laughs> I love it. All right. Well, listen, David, thank you. It's, it's, been a, it's been a pleasure. We'll talk soon, okay? All right. Take care, Dana. Thank, thank you. you. Yep. Bye-bye.